0: Get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgrace Land. Available right now wherever you get your podcasts. Rock rolla.
1: Wait, what is it? And let's not forget the best part of the whole thing. Love it. Are you ready? Hey there, I'm Chris Shiplett, and you're watching another fine episode of Shred with Shifty. It is a good one today. Get ready for all those cool, jazzy chord inversions. But first, wanted to remind you, it's not too late if you're out on the West Coast to catch one of my solo gigs. I'm playing tonight, August 24th, at the Belly Up in Solana Beach. Then Venice West in Venice, California tomorrow night, August 25th. Then up to Bakersfield, California at Tembler Bruins, Saturday night in Bakersfield, August 26th. Let's go. And we did add a matinee show uh, out at Fitzgerald Sidebar in Chicago on September 14th with my buddy Jim from Pennywise. That's gonna be epic. There's still some some tickets left for that. So get on over to chrisshipletmusic.com. You can get tickets for all the shows. You can also pre-order my new record, Lost at Sea. Doesn't come out until October 20th, but we've got bundles with football scarves and coffee cups, fish and lures, colored vinyl, everything you want. Get them before they're gone. And if you haven't done so already, please sign up for Shifty's Tackle Shop to stay up on all the latest news. And I'm not sure how you're watching this right now, but uh, if you want to get the ad-free versions of the show, make sure you get over to volume.com slash Shifty and follow us there. Because well, what's better than ad-free? You don't want all those pesky ads. And one more thing, if you could be so kind, please go over to my YouTube channel and follow me there. My YouTube numbers are abysmal. We need to get that up and we need your help to do it. And I promise you, I'm gonna start posting just really super duper interesting content there soon. And as always, learn the guitar solo, or in today's case, the chords. Uh, Film it, post it, tag us, shred with Shifty and tag me too so we can review that at a later date. All right, let's get into the show. All right, if ever there was a guest that needed no introduction, today's guest is it. He's performed on, written, produced, or arranged so many hit songs in his decades-long career that his strat is nicknamed the Hitmaker. He is, of course, the one and only Nile Rodgers. And no, we're not breaking down a chic tune, or David Bowie, or Sister Sledge, or Madonna, or uh, Duran Duran, for that matter, but we are getting into the weeds on the Diana Ross classic tune, I'm Coming Out, where Nile's gonna break down all the guitar parts in it, chords, fanfare, Everything. I got to say, this one really stretched me out, got me thinking different as a player, because it's just so out of my wheelhouse and not what I normally do, and I love it. This is Niall Rogers on Shred with Shifty. Niall, what's up, man?
2: How are you? Okay, great, guys. What's happening?
1: Very uh, excited, and honestly pretty nervous to do this interview man this is probably the the most I've like woodshedded on um, any of these interviews because your guitar play I love your guitar playing you're obviously one of the most iconic guitar players out there with an instantly recognizable sound to what you do but it's so out of my wheelhouse you know I came up in like <laughs> loud rock and roll music that's just like Gah! and you know you, you you play with all this finesse and and nuance um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. thanks for doing this and and I and I hope I learn a lot something tells me I'm going to I don't know. <laughs> because I started out
2: with bands just playing, you know. Uh, this one goes to 11. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> so
1: you're a fascinating guitar player, because although, I mean, if if people could have seen what, what I just saw when we were setting, setting up a moment ago, you can obviously rip lead guitar. You know, you were sitting there just like noodling around ripping. Um, but that's not the part of your guitar playing that you're really famous for. It's more like the the riffs and the, and the songs, of course, and the grooves and all this, and your production and, and all that. But why? Like, was that a conscious decision when you first started out to not showcase your lead guitar playing? And if so, why?
2: Um, well, the the thing is, is that um, I did showcase my lead guitar playing actually quite a bit, but. It was, I came up in the era of the album, if you will. So the songs, uh, like I, you know, my very first single, my first song that I ever put out was, you know, A Million Seller. And people thought the B-side was the A-side because the B-side was an instrumental that I had written called Sao Paulo. Um, And instrumentals were a large part of the music business when we started So when I was in a rock and roll band, and we were in a heavy rock and roll band, um, playing instrumentals was our thing. As a matter of fact, we have a song called "At Last I'm Free" that became probably more well known, um, not as a Chic song, but from the rock bands covering it. Uh, But in fact, I did write that um, in nineteen seventy or sixty-nine, like right right after Woodstock. I mean, oh wow! uh,
1: So. And you were um, at Woodstock, weren't you? Yeah, I, I was at Woodstock. sick as wow. a dog, but yes. <laughs> Why did you? You didn't take the brown acid, did you? <laughs> I took every color acid they had. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, um, man. I mean, yeah. talk about... It was so funny. We, I mean, imagine having to call your... Par- and plus, my parents didn't have a car. So the only one out of my crew who's... Uh, you know, parental figure had a car, was my other guitar player friend, and his dad was um, a tenured professor at Columbia University. So to tell this distinguished gentleman to come and pick us up, because we're like vomiting and throwing up, and we took too much acid, and we didn't know what we had taken, and we were just trying to, to party and hang out,
1: and it was pretty embarrassing. Yeah, I, I have t- teenage boys, so I uh, I feel his pain. Um, <laughs> it, by the way, it, it should be noted real quick that uh, one of these songs we're fo- focusing on today actually does have a guitar solo. So I don't want to I don't want to sell your lead guitar playing short here, and we'll get to that in a bit. But before we get into that, can you talk a little bit about how you developed your rhythm style? Because you have a very distinctive, you know, t- like chucking r- rhythm style, yeah. like, with like cool inversions, and it's there's. It's is there so much more than initially meets the ear? Because I've tried to figure out some of your songs before, and then and then went and and watched online, you know, what you're actually doing, and I'm like, oh my god, that's so much cooler and more interesting than what I thought it was.
2: Yeah. So what happened was I started out with classical music. I started out uh, as a woodwind player. I started out on flute, and I switched from flute to B flat clarinet. What was great about the B flat clarinet is that it has the same written range as the guitar. So when I, uh, so I'm a New Yorker, and uh, but I'm sort of bi-coastal. So my mom had me really young. The first time she had sex, 13 years old, she got pregnant, had me. Um, so we ha- I had a very nomadic childhood, and um, so, so when I was Playing classical music, I played nothing but classical music until about the age of 15 or 16. At that time, I was in Los Angeles. Um, I I went out uh, to this party and um, we used to listen to a radio station that was just a real hardcore R&B radio station that every now and then played some jazz like West Montgomery and stuff. And -hmm. as much as I loved it, I never tried to play that style of music. I only played classical music. Um, but then one day, we went to this thing called the Teenage Fair at the Hollywood Palladium. And we met a group of guys that would be called hippies. But in those days, they were called freaks. And um, they asked us if we wanted to take a trip. And we said, sure, man. We In those days in LA, so we're talking late 60s, mid 60s, um, Uh, taking trips were, you know, we were hitchhikers. We we hitchhiked all over town and would hitchhike to to Venice to the beach and a whole bit. And uh, we thought that's what they meant. So we took a trip with these dudes. They took us up into the Hollywood Hills. And um, that was the first time I had LSD. And I didn't know what was going on at all. I mean, I had no idea, never heard of Dr. Timothy Leary, never heard of LSD, none of this stuff. And, um, we partied with these people for like two days. And they thought we were really funny. We thought they were really funny because we were actually on our way to the skating rink. <laughs> and we got waylaid because we were we arrived in between sessions. And we were waiting for the next session. And we happened to notice these freaks going to the teenage fair. And wow, the rest is history. They, they played the Doors' first album for two days straight. And uh, and when I finally got home, uh, the police were at my house because uh, my grandmother thought that I was kidnapped or ran away. And I just walked into the house going, this is the end, beautiful <laughs> friend, my only friend. Father, yes, son, I want to kill you mom I want to kill you. I was like
1: gone right right i mean was that the moment like musically that that you got turned on at all like you know more like the rock and roll stuff like how did that play i guess what i'm getting at is who were the the guitar players you were listening to that kind of influenced like some of that like you know the like the way you kind of pump with the with the left hand and and keep the percussive thing going with the right hand so that
2: developed later so first i got into the music of my real my childhood which was jazz Sure. So I was really into straight-ahead bebop jazz guitar playing, um, you know Django Reinhardt style. I love gypsy g- guitar playing. So that's that's really where I was coming from.
1: Hey, this is Shred with Shifty. We got to take a little break, pay the bills, and we'll be right back after that.
2: The whole thing about chucking came into my world when I met my soon-to-be partner, Bernard Edwards. And we, he hired me. Uh, well, we met on a pickup gig where we were both hired by somebody that we didn't know. and um, uh, But for some reason, he and I just got along like it was incredible. It was, it was, I, I even said to him after that first night that we met, I said, man, I never want to do another gig without you. He said, it's funny. I was thinking the exact same thing about you now I wasn't chucking, and I didn't even have a solid body guitar I was playing a big jazz guitar and uh but still it was funky because at least we played the songs um and they sounded like the songs on the jukebox right and people liked that like in the black community back in the day um uh, and and so that I I did that for years and then um so, I had always been a, a music student. Um, I, I then started studying at uh, this uh, institution called the Jazz Mobile Workshop, uh, which was in Harlem, even though I lived downtown in the village. Um, uh, so, I would go to Jazz Mobile Workshop and I studied under this guitarist named Ted Dunbar and um, another guy named Roland Prince. And um, they started to get me more into the West Montgomery style of playing with the thumb and the whole bit. And,
1: okay. and,
2: and that was, that was fun. That was great. As a matter of fact, um, Ted Dunbar, you might know of him because he replaced John McLaughlin in the Tony Williams lifetime. He, oh, wow. he did the second album. So John did the first album. Um, and then he, John left the band and then my teacher came in. Um, so I was just doing the jazz scene in New York. Uh still playing a big fat guitar, um but we were doing covers, man. We were playing like you know hit records right, and somehow we got a gig because we had gotten pretty popular i'm I'm actually giving you the super condensed story, even though I'm talking a lot um because what happened is i I went and I auditioned, I got the gig for Sesame Street, so I started playing for Sesame Street at nineteen. I went from Sesame Street to the Apollo Theater, uh, was in the house band. Then Bernard uh, became the music director of a band called New York City. We had a hit record called I'm Doing Fine Now, and we traveled around the world with that hit record for about two years. Um, but I was still playing bigger guitars. Um, my compromise was a 335 at one point, And then I went back to uh, a big box, uh, Barney Kessel. Uh, And then our group somehow got um, uh, um, the opportunity to to open for the Jackson 5, because the Jackson 5 were doing their first world tour. And they had, I think, the Commodores and, um, uh, oh, man. The, uh, the group we we stood in for who did Backstabbers, the OJ's, okay. So we so when the OJ's would have another gig, uh, we would step in and uh, we would do the gig. And that's when I first met Michael and we became friends for life. Um, and uh, and I was watching the Mike was watching the Jackson Five play Dancing Machine. They were rehearsing Dancing Machine. And me and Bernard were in the audience. Now, mind you, what I haven't said to you guys is Bernard had always been busting my ass about getting a strap. Like, okay. he was like, every day of his life, man, you need to get a strap. You need to get a strap, man. That's, that big fat thing is feeding back, man. You know, who do you think you are, man? You're not West Montgomery. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I said, but when I'm not playing with you, I get to play, you know, Sesame Street and cocktail gigs and whatever. Right. So anyway, we did this one gig and we were doing a gig down in Miami Beach and uh, sorry, it was Fort Lauderdale and um, uh, at this joint called no, it was Miami Beach Kenny's Castaways and um, we were headlining and the band that was opening for us had a young kid who was playing a strat. And when I say young kid, dude, affectionately, I mean, what, I was all at 20 or something. But the guy before us was maybe 17 or 18. And he had a Strat. And he was also playing cover songs, right? Because that's what they hired you for, to play the songs that were hot. And he plucked it into my amp, and he sounded amazing. (laughs) And Bernard, you know what, you've heard the statement, if looks could kill. I swear to God, man, daggers were coming out of the dude's eyes. He was like looking at me, like, you motherfucker. <laughs> like, yeah. Listen to what he sounds like. And he yeah. can't play half the stuff you play. Listen to that guy. He sounds 10 times better than you, and he can't play half as well. He said, I want you to go get a strat. I was like, all right. So I took my Barney Kessel um, to this district in uh, between Fort Lauderdale and Miami, North Miami, whatever. And they had a whole bunch of pawn shops in those days, and I gave the guy my Barney Kessel, and he gave me back this exact guitar and three hundred dollars. And Wait, I went like is,
1: is, is that the hit maker right there? That's the yeah, actual. Yeah, hit? this oh, exact wow. guitar. This guitar, nice. And three hundred dollars. I was like, "What? Oh, god, wow. yeah, that's the best trade in your of your whole life." You know, you've probably told this story a million times, but I always wondered how the those Gibson speed knobs wind up on it.
2: Well, that was the whole deal. So so remember, I had just told you, I'd only been playing jazz guitars. So these are the knobs that I was used to. And Uh, Marvin Gaye had the song, Let's Get It On, and it started with So probably that guitar player on that record may have had a volume pedal, but I couldn't afford any of that stuff. So I had to do the effect like, you know, like.
1: All right, yeah, sure.
2: You know, I mean, that's, it was like, <laughs> that was the only way I could do it. So um, it became, it became a part of my playing. Cause if I would, if I were to solo over something that was sweet, it was nice and expressive to be able to go. You know that? Sure, sure, sure. So it just became a thing. And then I got the, I put this uh, shiny pick guard on it, this faceplate, because I used to to shine it in girls in the audience,
0: and right. that just became a gimmick.
2: Yeah. Um, Off and the then, lake. Um, disco ball, yeah, yeah, and, and also because um, uh, it, it's a hard hardtail, my guitar is light as a feather. I mean, this weighs this thing weighs nothing, and whenever I play other strats, I'm like, oh Jesus Christ. But my guitar, I mean, honestly, if you pick this thing up, you'd be cracking up at how light it is. Really? Um, So many people who are into the whole folklore of Leo Fender and how cheap he was and whatever, whatever, I've heard a million stories. So I don't know what this really is. Um, The other day, um, Richie Sambora, who's got uh, two... um, um, Oh uh, man, what are the what are the uh, the most expensive shred. The 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 one after the cool guitar player. What's her what's her name? Um, hmm,
1: I'm not sure. What like a 59 or something? Uh,
2: they named the guitar after her, but Leo was so cheap he didn't even give her one, so she never even owned one. But um, Mary Kay, right? Uh, so Ritchie Sambora has two Mary Kays and he said, "Nah, look at your guitar. It's like a Mary Kay. It's all thin." It's light as a feather. It's because it was made for women. And it was like, uh, oh, there you go. Uh, Maybe.
1: But whatever, it's this. And do, you, do you know what year it is? 59. Oh, it's, it is a 59. OK, amazing. Right. Why were all the good guitars built in 1959? It's like Les Pauls, Strats, uh, Gretsch's. It's always a 59. Like, what was happening that year for guitar building?
2: I don't know, man. Yeah. I, I guess they felt the, they were on the the cusp of a new
1: decade coming in, and so they wanted to go out swinging. Yeah, and then and then guitar, the guitar player, the guitar industry has never improved on it; <laughs> <end>. they've <laughs> only made them worse. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I got a question. I mean, you're talking about sort of those early years when you're coming up, but you produced the the Chic records, right? Yeah, you're, yeah. you're producing from the get go, right? Yeah. How did you work that? How did, how did it, you know, A, how did you have the confidence to know what you wanted to hear in the studio, being relatively young and inexperienced, you know, I'm, I'm assuming. And also, how did you get your label to go along with that? Like, was producing always the sort of end goal for you? So, so no. So, I was an arranger.
2: See, I did all of the, the charts. So, what happened was, since I came in, so not only did I write the song, but I wrote the arrangement. I wrote out the strings and I wrote the horns and all that. So, um, I just being a youngster thought that being an arranger was a very distinguished gig to have. Like, I, I mean, if I go back in history and I think of all the records that I would actually be the co-writer on because I did all that stuff, I was like, but I, I wanted to be like Burt Bacharach or like Quincy Jones Uh. or... Yeah. yeah, Or, you know, or like uh, Oliver Nelson. I thought that that's being a jazz orchestrator and arranger. I thought that was the bomb. Right. So when we first heard the term "self-contained band," you know, which is you know from the Beatles, we were like going, "Oh, wow! Well, yeah, that's what we have to do everything." So I had to do the string charts, the horn, the harps, the violins, everything. Right. Right, and to it song was
1: produced the track. go
2: right, but oh. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't know about the producer being the same as like the director of a film. Like you were, you know, like you were the boss. I thought that it was like the person who put up the money. I didn't really, I, I thought it was like a movie business, right? So right. to me, the arranger, that that thing, I knew what Burt Bacharach did. I knew what Quincy Jones did. I knew that. So. Um, um, so I just grew up with this teenage mind of wow, I want to be that dude. And next thing I know, I realize I wrote that song. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> it
1: just and no. somebody else got the publishing credit. Yeah. Right.
2: My man, he just did. That's what Bowie did on Let's Dance. <laughs> I went. And then moved it up an octave and went. And then to minor 13 chord. I'm like, that's what I did.
1: Well, it's funny that, I mean, that's got to be one of the most, like, sort of disputed things is when does um, contributing become writing, you know?
2: I I just wanted to be um, that guy who helped an artist, focus and complete the work and do all the beautiful ear candy. I mean that's that's what I wanted to do. I thought that was cool. Like you just write and I'll write You
1: know, how old were you when you actually first picked up a guitar? Uh sixteen. Oh really? Okay. I mean at what point, you know, like um in playing, you talked a little bit about how you, how you were learning guitar, but um, at what point in it did it go from, you know, learning a couple of cowboy chords and a couple of scales to, like, you know, I got this, like, feeling like you were taking control of it?
2: Almost right away, because what happened was uh, I was an v- incredibly accomplished music reader because I had been playing in the symphony orchestras, the various symphony orchestras around Los Angeles. Um, so when I switched to the B-flat clarinet, which has the same written range as right. the guitar, right? The E, the low E, three ledger lines below the staff, is the same E as that guy on a clarinet. So I had tons of etudes that I could study and learn to play, you know, fingering on the guitar just from these books. And I just said, OK, I know what this sounds like or should sound like, um, but here's the funny thing, man. So after that s- psychedelic experience, coming home, you know, after listening to the, to the Doors over and over and over again for 48 hours, um, I, I uh, get my grandfather's guitar it's up on the wall. He only played blues. And I get my grandfather's guitar up on the w- from the wall, and I try to tune it. Because I didn't really know anything about the guitar because it's not part of the symphony orchestra. So I tuned it in fifths. And because that's the only thing that sort of made sense to me. And I went out and bought a Beatles songbook. And I kept trying to play the song A Day in the Life. And I was playing it like fingering. And it was just sounded really weird. And my wacky teenage brain thought that, well, (sighs) I noticed if you don't have your mouth on the on various instruments that I had played uh, before I picked up the guitar, if you don't have your mouth in the proper position, you don't get the right tone. You got to get it. You got to be just right for it to function properly. It's called embouchure. And I was just singing, like, so I have to have the the guitar equivalent of the right embouchure. And mm. I kept kept at it, man, trying to play a day in the life in this little chord chart in this Beatles songbook. And one day, uh, my mom's boyfriend uh, came home and said, um, whoa, dude, you know, like, what do you have that thing tuned like? Uh, I said, you know, like, I have a tune like a guitar. So I was, I was able to play bass lines. I was just going... And doing stuff like that you know yeah, sure. um <laughs> but but then when I tried to play the chords it was all wacky
1: yeah what well I mean, if you tune the guitar to fist what does that do to the like what do the chord shapes become like kind of all on top of each other no 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 I, I i still looked at the dots
2: in the in the in the book yeah i can't even remember it now first song i learned to play
0: i read the new
2: what's the next chord in oh yeah, what-
1: I'm like, nope. I can't nope. remember. know yeah, I, Russ. I played it at my wedding. What, what I are the changes to... Uh, uh, I, love, uh,
2: I know the first chord is G. I read the news today. Oh, boy. Uh,
1: it's
2: G. Yeah. Uh, B minor over F sharp. Really? Oh, no, it's a B minor. With an F sharp in the bass. With the F sharp in the bass. Oh yeah. Right. Into a D. Right. About a lucky man who we yeah. whatever. But anyway. <laughs> so I I did those chords and um and and it was sounding totally wacky, and I, I couldn't understand why it didn't sound like, uh, you know, a day in the life, and because I guess what I was hearing instead of the first thing being, it would be like, <laughs> oh, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. it's a crazy stretch, <laughs> like it was all like, like man, what is that? I read the new. So my man came, he tuned tuned the guitar for me. And then as soon as he tuned the guitar, I had been practicing so hard at this thing. And my grandfather's guitar had action that was that high. So I was just getting stronger and stronger. And then I went, and it was like, oh my god. Uh, That's what I've been looking for. Oh boy. I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> yeah, you're off to the races. I was gone, man. <laughs>
1: hey, you're listening to Shred with Shifty. We'll be right back after this commercial break. get into the song uh i'm coming out let's 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 talk about this a little bit um what do you remember about the day in the studio that you recorded i'm coming out like was who was there with you who was in the room was diana ross there which would she come in after you track stuff or would she be there kind of like being involved in the musical side of stuff yes
2: never she was never there during the tracking um i'm coming out was a process believe it or not That rhythm that I had written out for Tony Thompson to play in the drum, see, everybody in my band, they were all good music readers, right? Right. So uh, that drum part, I had written for Tony for uh, a recording session that we had done with Ashford and Simpson, and they had a song called Don't Cost You Nothing, and they had hired us. We were really young. Uh, Valerie Simpson's brother said, "I found these guys. They're really great. You need to hear them. They're going to be the next big thing. Uh, just hire them to produce a couple of your songs." So they were really nice to us. They let us come in, and so me, of course, wanting to be Burt Bacharach, <laughs> they, they play their song, and it's uh "Don't cost you nothing, do take a chance as you go. Don't cost you nothing, do do." Do 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 and I was like, no 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 no, let me make this cool. So I went, don't cause <laughs> you boom, fa boom, 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 do do va boom, 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 do fa boom, don't cost you nothing, <laughs> pop, do boom, do do ba pop ba pop, do do fa because it was the time of fusion, right? So I'm like, I'm gonna make this like totally happen, and it's gonna be like, phew, Tony Williams lifetime. Um, whoops no they uh um i always make fun of valerie simpson she wrote me the kindest dear john letter like thanks but no thanks now now she says did,
1: did now, they figure that out later when this song was a huge hit or that no oh. no no
2: no 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 she <laughs> actually she actually was being really great because one we did take that song too far but two we had already played her our demos of songs that we had cut. And she said, Wow, those are going to be hits. There's nothing we can really do to help you. And we don't think your concept of arranging our stuff helps us. So we parted ways, but have always stayed incredibly close friends. Oh, wow. That's um, cool. So that drum beat existed in my head. And it was like, you know, when you're in a band, you have licks that you try. And sure. it doesn't make it on one song. It doesn't make it on another. But then finally, you write another song. And so that that drum beat, we, you know, I had the chart written out for Tony. And we had tried that drum beat on a number of songs. We actually named it the Hesitation Waltz, even though it's not in 6 8 or, th- or 3. It's not a waltz, but we'd like the do fa, boom, 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 do fa. Doom doom pop pop doom boom So at the at the time that we cut um the record, I knew that pattern so well. Uh if if you play the record, because I can't I guarantee you I don't remember it now, um, but I knew that pattern so well that it's now um, it becomes playful when when we record it, because we record everything as a full band. So when we record it, uh, there's a bit where Tony and I are playing off of each other, where, where that groove is so strong and so solid. And I'm starting doing, so my normal part is something like, something like that right sure, sure but then i started getting playful with it and i'm doing like
1: you know and all sorts oh, of stuff Yeah, wow cool those are, the, those are those like those details that like to the casual listener you're not even processing that but it's in the it's in there and it's doing something like you're right. feeling it if you're not realizing what it is you know right well the thing
2: is is that i'm a very hook oriented guy i believe in Reinforcing the thing that I believe is melodically the motif that the house is built on. So right. to me, the house w- was built on, I'm coming out. Uh-uh. So it was built on the right. I want the to grow, got the look is So when I'm even when I start to riff and go off and I go or whatever I do, you'll always hear or 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 whatever. I I don't like you playing know. off
1: the melody in your in your
2: on some kind of way. Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. What can you just sort of detail what exactly that is you just did? Like where you're playing that and how and what the. Because that's the stuff in your playing that it's it's hard to figure out just by listening to the record. So I, w- I want to see like exactly what you're doing there. The basic structure of "I'm Coming Out," and 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 I guess it's
2: important to know why we wrote "I'm Coming Out." So uh, when we had written um, "He's the Greatest Dancer" for Sister Sledge, which is how we broke Sister Sledge, um, I had no idea that Kathy was 16 years old and a virgin and was a church-going girl. But but He's the Greatest Dancer was about having a one-night stand with a guy. And the mother was the manager, and they were angry, and it caused a lot of problems between us. And we were like going, oh, my God. So now we get a chance to produce Diana Ross. The last thing I want to do is have a misunderstanding with D- Diana Ross. So we sit down with Diana, and we do two days of... Wow, it the album is a documentary. She basically tells her tells us her whole life. And then I happened to go out clubbing one night and I went to a club that was primarily a trans club and but it was just, you know, it was the 70s. Clubs were clubs. It was like, you know, it may be a trans club, but it wasn't weird if you were straight and you know, um so I went into the bathroom and I don't mind saying that those were the heavy drug days. And I went into the bathroom, but I was actually using the bathroom for what it was intended. You know, it was okay. I, I, right. I, I had, Well, no, well, I had to pee. So, <laughs> so I went to pee and I noticed that on either side of me, like six or seven deep were Diana Ross impersonators. And I was like, what? And I got all excited. I'm like, oh man, this is a sign. I was like the, Light bulb goes off over my head, and I was thinking of I gotta write a song about you know the, the pride that the gay community feels you know towards Diana Ross or her alliance with that community. Did did she know, was she
1: aware of that? Of oh of no, that? not at all, not at all. No, no, no. It was this was she didn't she didn't know she was a gay icon or whatever. Oh what? yeah,
2: she she probably did know that. Right. But she didn't necessarily know the term, I'm coming out.
1: Oh, okay, right, right, sure. sure. Right, you know what
2: I mean? Because, yeah. um, so, um, you know, I, I got really excited. I called my partner Bernard, who wasn't a party animal. I called him up and I told him, I said, yo, please write this down because I guarantee you I'm going to get drunk tonight. I'm going to forget this. I said, write down, I'm coming out. He was half asleep. He was like, going, Man, what what man what what are you talking about? I'm coming out. I'm, what what? I said, yeah, man, right now I'm coming out because. And then I explained the situation to him. I said, dude, I'm like in a Fellini movie. I'm in the bathroom and it's like Diana Ross is all around me, and we gotta write the song because yeah. that it's like, dude, it's a sign. I mean, come on, man. He said, oh, okay, I get, it, I get, it, I get it. Cool. So the next day the band we all convene at the studio so a typical chic recording session is uh the rhythm section and uh and uh, and when i say the rhythm section we don't do percussion when we do the basic rhythm section so it's just our two keyboard players uh guitar bass and drums so that's how we record that's yep. how we start and then everything else is, um, so when we do the percussion that we devote a day or two to doing all the percussion on the album, when we do the strings, we devote a day or two to doing all the strings and we do right. the horns, sure. you know, and then we do the background vocals, same thing. So that's our technique and we can finish an entire album in usually about two weeks or a week and a half with that process. Yeah. So, so the day that we cut it, it's just the rhythm section. It's me, Bernard Edwards, Tony Thompson, Raymond Jones, and Rob Sabino. And uh, it's D minor 7, A minor 7, uh, down to G minor 7, and then F, B flat, F D flat, A minor 7.
1: Now, when you're doing all those those chords, are you doing, because I also know you do a lot of, um, you know, you'll do inversions where it's just the top three strings or whatever. Right, 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 right. Like full chords on this one? Uh, I
2: finger full chords, but you don't hear. You don't, you're not hearing. You're hearing. You're just hearing the top three strings, basically. So you're hearing. Right? But everything is fingered to keep it from, you know, Having uh, sympathetic overtones and stuff,
1: yeah, you got it cool cool, cool. Right. cool. and uh, and just out of curiosity, where are you? on your uh, pickup selector are you like in the middle always
2: or? on the neck pickup always all the, the way
1: on the neck okay gotcha and on this track i mean i'm assuming it's the hit maker but yeah. what else what else do you have going on i mean you're famous for for plugging direct into the board is that how you were doing it?
2: so everything is direct uh with uh with whatever amp i happen to be in love with at the time so both things are recorded simultaneously and then blended uh, and do you remember what amp you were playing on on this session not really. It would probably have been uh, Vibra Lux. Um, I, I was always a big fan of tangent speakers right from the beginning. Yeah. Um, they seem to cut better. They have that sort of thing. So everything I do is light. I super light gauge
1: strings. My pick is absurd. Really? <laughs> okay. Like, do you because you uh part of your of your process of plugging direct into the board do you sort of think of consoles the way most of us guitar players think of amps like are there specific ones that that you go to because you like this specific sound or that specific sound
2: at a certain point in my life that was the case um uh so when we started out we started out on a Neve sixty-one twenty. Uh, and was it a sixty-one twenty or am I getting my guitar now? Number, I'm starting to think about Gretsch guitars or Gibson. Right, right. Yeah, I <laughs> know. Yeah, yeah, so, um, but a Neve, a, a Neve, right? Yeah. Okay. Um the the Neve at the power station, um, in Studio A. So that that was the our main console. Then we moved to Studio B. Because all the big rock and roll bands wanted to use the room sound at the um, power station. And we found that we could make just as many hits in the smaller studio and uh, stay under budget. And um, and it was great. And, it, and the studio loved us because they were able to book their second studio all the time, which we had it continuously. And then Bob Clear Mountain and I, we went out to Los Angeles to record the third Chic album and um, we had the Nicholas Brothers tap dance on one of our songs and we went to a studio called Kendon and it was the first time we had seen an SSL and we went whoa what is this and it had gates on every channel and we were like oh man and, they, and, it, was, and it was the first time we had seen a Yamaha NS10s because up until that time everything was you know, oratone speakers were like the default speakers that we went to to listen to uh, it, uh, in an environment that most people would listen on. Right. But when we saw those NS tens and and that SSL, we were like, Power Station's got to build us a new studio. And we oh, were I- such we were such big clients. I mean, we were we I, I I can't tell you the amount of recordings that we made. It was just one record after the next. We were nonstop. Um, we we put the power station on the map. We we never left. Every single day, we were making records.
1: And, and you you had had a bunch of hit records by this time. But was was Diana Ross the first like superstar? Yes, yet?
2: she was the first superstar.
1: So how was that? Like how was that for you as a producer? Was she open to what you wanted to do and your suggestions and and sort of the direction you wanted to take things, or was she set in her ways? Like how was that working with her?
2: She was she was completely open. Uh, and and as I said, we interviewed her for two days. No one had ever interviewed her before writing a song. Uh, at Motown, she just sang what they gave her to sing. She was so flattered that we took the time to find out who she was. Of course, we didn't tell her that we had just had a, a horrible experience with Sister Sledge, but gave him a monster record. I mean, two Monster, three, four monster records. Uh, um, you know, uh, so we were just covering our butts and trying to get smarter because we didn't know any better. We were just young and uh, we, we didn't know. We only knew what we knew. We didn't know what we didn't know. So
1: helpful uh, sometimes. Yeah. You so the things you don't know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so after she tells us her whole life story, we write a documentary as seen through the eyes of Bernard Edwards and Nile Rodgers. That's mm. all that album is. That's why it's just called Diana. It's it's a it's, um, life story. It's, yeah. It's like we knew that Barry Gordy had fathered her first child, but no one had, had admitted it, but she told us. So we wrote about it. We, that we wrote the song Upside Down. Upside Down, Boy You Turned Me,
0: you
2: know, round and round. Um, uh, and because she was a superstar, at that time, the two biggest women Uh, artists in the world were barbara streisand and diana ross so we knew that we could use words that were like polysyllabic words so when we wrote upside down we do um, uh, instinctively you give to me the love that i need i cherish the moments with you respectfully, I say to thee, i I mean, give me a break. You couldn't put that shit in a rock and roll record, but you got Diana Ross, respectfully, I say to thee, I'm aware that you're cheating. And, um, and it worked. So Upside Down was killing for her. And, um, and I'm Coming Out was great. And she was so happy. And she walked over or whatever. She rode over to uh, the number one station in America at that time, uh, was WBLS and the number 1 DJ was a guy named Frankie Crocker and she played I'm coming out for him she just loved it and Frankie Crocker told her he said do you know what this song is about and she says what do you mean he says do you know that this song is going to ruin your career she said what are you talking wow. about she, she said no this whole album is about me it's a doc it's a documentary it's you know it's about my life Right, He said, well, is your life that you're gay? He said, what are you talking about? This is saying that you're coming out and that you're gay. Um, so she came back to the studio and she was really um, upset because this guy was the most powerful person in the music business in America at that time. Wow. And he told her all this negative stuff. Um, and this was the one... And and I promise you, it was the one and only time I ever lied to an artist in my life. I knew that this was going to be a hit, um, and I rarely know that a record's going to be a hit. Believe me, um, but you felt,
1: you knew when you guys had this
2: one. Oh come on, man! I, if you had been in that club and seen all these like the, the community of people, and they were all like dressed up like Diana. And it wasn't like it was Diana Ross night or something, or maybe it was, I don't know. Yeah. But I couldn't believe what I saw. Like, you go to a club and everybody is dressed up like the artist that you're producing? Sure. So um, I looked at Diana and I remember I I looked at her and I lied to her and I said, wait a minute, what, what, what did Frankie tell you? She said, he told me this record's going to ruin my career. I, I said, and why is that? Because it says I'm coming out. It's going to make people think that I say that I'm coming out of the closet. I, now, now, Diana is totally not homophobic. Believe me, she's like like one of the coolest people in the world.
0: But, but it was a different, she, a different but era. She, no, sure. but she,
2: she's not gay. So she was just saying, if you're doing a documentary about me, why are you saying I'm gay? And I said I said because Frankie doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. We're not saying that you're gay. We're saying that you're just coming out and starting your show. And I said to her, I said I said Diana, when when you start your show, when you talk to your band, what do you say to your sh- what do you say to the band? She said, "Okay, uh, uh, I don't know, but the band leader does that." I said, "Well, we say, "Hey guys, what song are we coming out with tonight?" And, and she said, oh, you guys in New York, you're so cute. And I said, yeah, that's what we do. I said, you know, because we have a lot of songs and we like to read the crowd like DJs. So we, we said, well, what song are we going to come out with tonight? So this is your coming out song. And believe it or not, I guarantee you that once this album comes out and people hear this, you are never, ever going to come out to another song again for the rest of your life now i don't know if you guys have ever seen diana ross in the last 40 years but believe me i wound up being pr- prophetic because yeah. every show starts with
0: I'm coming out.
2: and that and big here.
1: drum yeah exactly. <laughs> every show
2: every well, single
1: it's, show it's funny like after the song came out it was a massive uh you know mega hit were you like actually that that dj was he was he was right like did you did you eventually tell her the truth
2: i don't think it ever came to that
1: because nobody cares when it's a hit at that point
2: right yeah, yeah. like 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 yeah like there's what the old adage in the recording business uh um a hit has many fathers and a failure is a is an orphan right like so yes, at course. this point it was everybody's idea oh no of course we want oh man of course we believe in that. that's great man. yeah look at the gay community standing up with Diana Ross. Yeah, I was like, oh, please. Now, and the way that I sold it to my partner, um, I said to him, I said it'll be ju- just like when James Brown, who was not particularly known for being um, an activist or whatever, but all he did was cut one record, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Next thing you sure. know, James Brown was like Malcolm X. Right. I said so. Right. I said so. All we gotta do is, cut. I'm coming out and yeah. Diana Ross is going to be like the head of the movement.
1: All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back after this. Well, okay. Let's let, let's get into like the meat and potatoes of how you play this. I mean, you 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 showed me like the those initial chords. Um so that's the opening of the song that's also the the chorus and kind of the main riff. Uh so what? So in the there's then there's like a verse that's kind of like a mellower version of a similar theme, but not quite the same, and a little right, chorus. right. Let's how you, how you approach that. So the chorus we got,
2: we got, and then we and the verse
1: basically goes. Before we get to the verse, actually, when you play that, when you get down to that G uh minor seven are you throwing like a sus four thing in, in there so every now like- and
2: then every now and then yeah i go yeah yep and i'll sometimes i'll i'll even do it on the a every now and then
1: awesome yeah 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 so wow. uh, um
2: I always say that the way that I play guitar is is like I'm the right hand of the piano. Okay. So like when we're playing with piano players, they're always fiddling around up there because sure. and doing inversions and doing licks and other melodies. Um, so when I play the basic song, I establish the riff. But once I establish the riff, I'm continuously developing it and fooling around with it and. You know, just having fun, and um, you know, just having conversations with my bandmates. um, You know, while we're playing the song, and they do the same thing too. We're we're all just jamming through every
1: song. And what was what was that uh, that high inversion thing that you threw in there a minute ago?
2: Oh, when I so so every now and then, what I'll do is I so if I'm playing a D, one of the the fun things I like to do is I like to go. Uh, Just all just an octave up. Well, no, no. At that point, I'm playing a minor ele. I'm I'm playing all fourths. I'm playing. Oh. Oh wow. I'll go. I'll play it down here. I go, but I use it with minor seven. So the reason why I I do it with just fourth up high, because at that point we know the song. So we can accept
1: we can accept that you've established the the pattern or the riff in the core and the chord structure in people's ears, and now you can start to play with it.
2: Sometimes I'll switch to I go.
1: Ooh, what was that quick chord you put in there? Was that was that like a C? So
2: so that was um, a variation of um, a D minor eleven. Um, but I'm only playing that portion of it, so I don't I don't have a I don't have a D in it. I'm only playing the extensions. Ah, okay. Yeah, so I'll play.
1: Whoa, okay, cool. Oh, wow, that's great. it's going to take me a minute to work that one out fast. At it's tempo. nice though, right? <laughs> it's, it's, a, very it's, nice. It's, a, it's a nice thing. But those those are exactly the details I'm talking about that make your song so cool like you just don't to me as as a guitar player like I like it I would never be able to pick that up off the recording. So it's right. so it's wonderful to have you explain it. But the whole the
2: whole point of it is um that that the rhythm section we become this um, um this sort of comforting place that you know that they're that we're jamming together, but but we're but we're being subordinate to the rules of the mode, if you if you will. Right. Every now and then I might stretch, but I try not to go too far. Yeah. Um, so
0: And your guitar
1: sp- playing never steps on a vocal. I've right. That's it. that's the most important thing to me. Yeah.
0: yeah to yeah.
2: always
1: keep the vocalist featured. So, so what are you doing in that verse section? That's like a similar chords.
2: So if you think of this song, um the the tonic really is F. It's not really to me it could be D minor, but I really think of it as F. So I go F coming out, have to live
0: Want to live.
2: so i'm just going 1
1: 3 2, one, one, three, two, three, two 3 2 okay great you doing you doing the the f is almost like a, um like a c shape or like a d minor 7 with the f
2: yeah or or actually uh, actually, because I'm I'm real, uh, so my favorite style of um, playing is to really just use three strings at a time. And the reason why I like to use three strings, um, even though I might finger more, I'm only concentrating on playing three, um, is because it allows me to um, dance around the neck a little bit. And you know make the parts really interesting so i just did that to show you what the basis is oh okay okay but i don't actually play that on the record on the record i'll go oh sorry Uh... and then sometimes i'll go Oh okay. This time has come for me to break. Oops, sorry, minor.
1: Okay, for that section when when you hit that first D minor, I thought I heard something on the record, like something moving around, like there's some some movement under there. Are you doing anything like that? Oh, so we go, no, no. So basically I'm actually just going.
2: So see, that's, that's the benefit of using just three strings. So you hear that and then. So I'm going. Oh, okay.
1: Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, great. Yeah. So you know, yeah. hear well, it's almost a kind of a high low, like you're going high, low, right on the different string wow, that's that's really cool. Uh, that is like quintessential chucking. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. That is that is the chucking, chucking. Right, okay. right there. Yeah, right. right there. Okay. okay. Amazing. Hey, can you talk a little bit about the or break down the um there's like a a a, a guitar solo kind of in the end, or you know, as the song's kind of going into more of like an instrumental thing. Um that it's some of it's it's a little low in the mix, so it was a little hard to hear exactly, but it's something like
0: oh, oh yeah, oh right. Thing, right, you know, right, what, right.
1: What, what are you doing there? Like a minor pentatonic box kind of thing with some passing notes. Yeah. So basically uh, I
2: love this, man. You're really getting into the meat of it. So what happened was the first time we met Diana Ross was at a live show. And um, we were playing in Los Angeles at the Santa Monica Civic. And uh, Bernard turned me around and he said, is that Diana Ross back we saw the big hairdo. And he said, damn, that's like the queen coming to see us. So I wrote a fanfare. <laughs> so I wrote... <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you're hearing, you're hearing me you so what I'm playing That's a um, salute to the Queen. That's a salute to the Queen, bro. So um so I'm 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 trying to think I'm going. So I'm playing along with him. I'm going. Uh, all right. Something like that.
1: Cool. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yes, yeah, so I'm going. That's what I do. I think that's what it is. Gotcha. Yeah, I wrote that. I wrote it so long ago I can't remember. But right, so that's in the middle of did it, did it, did it, did I go, some country kind of, lit, yeah, right, exactly. Kind
1: of... It's like the uh, the, Keith, the Keith Richards man. Right, right. That kind of, it's funny because that kind of gets back to the thing that, you know, I asked you kind of off the top, but like, you know, probably for most, like if I was a producer, I'd be like, that's going to be 10 times louder and super gained up <laughs> when it gets to that part. <laughs> but you know, I, I like how you keep it in the soup. It's cool.
2: It's nice having fun with you, man, to, to dissect this song uh, yeah. because um, I forgot about the fanfare. Like, and and I forgot about Bernard saying, Man, that's like the queen coming to see us. And I was like, Okay, (laughs) boom. So you think about, okay, drag queens. So we saw drag queens at night. Dude, this is the first time I'm actually putting this together. So it was drag queens the night that I had the idea. I had to convince Bernard to write it down to memorize it for me because I knew I was going to be so drunk. The next day I go, What? What are you talking about? Oh, right. Um, and it all came from that initial meeting, um, of him seeing her saying, that's like the queen, the drag queens, nah, nah. next thing you know, I write a fanfare. So it's all yeah. about royalty and all comes, Diana yeah. Ross being the queen of, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 the sort of, Crowd that we were trying to influence, if you will. We wanted to represent the sort of sophisticated new R and B crowd, you know, right. chic. We were not. We didn't play like the Ohio players, even though we loved the Ohio players. Right. But we yeah. wanted to be like the the slick, you know, group that did our own orchestration. Like you didn't see anyone else's name writing the
1: orchestration. It was always oh yeah, self contained. Self contained band. Hey man, now you've been amazing today, and like so amazingly generous with your time. Do you have time to sit for a minute, and take a couple of fan questions? Sure, bro. I, I threw it out. I threw it out to the internet that I was interviewing you today, and uh, and uh, and got some uh, got some people. There's some some things people want to know. Let's see here. Of course there's going to be a bunch of questions about the hitmaker. And you already addressed some of it. So some of this I don't need to ask you. But uh my two dogs eat fish wants to know <laughs> if 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 he couldn't play his hitmaker, what would be his go-to guitar?
2: Um, well, I've I've played other strat-like guitars. Um, there was the you know, the era where uh the Japanese guitar makers, you know, uh Fernandez and tokai and all those strats were coming out they were great i played tokai strats for a long time um uh and and if i couldn't play the hitmaker i would probably just play a different strat Um, (laughs) i mean so the hitmaker is a hardtail which is a very specific type of strat they only make one out of every 100 strats as a
1: hardtail um so i'd probably play one with a whammy bar (laughs) oh there you go there you go. Get into some of that Eddie Van Halen stuff. Oh, well, uh, dig this. D- have
2: you guys seen this? H- the new, they have a Bigsby pedal.
1: A Bigsby pedal? I have not D- seen it. I am that. buying that tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. What is it?
2: It's like having a Bigsby tailpiece on your guitar, and I don't have um, uh, uh, a Bigsby or, or any kind of whammy bar on this, and it's a whammy bar pedal.
1: Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. I, I have not seen it, but I'm going to check it out. And if Fend- anybody from Fenders watching get Niall uh Bigsby <laughs> on his next strap immediately,
2: no, no, no. I'm not going to put a Bigsby on it. It's on the floor.
1: It's a okay. Great. Perfect. <laughs> um, even better. Okay. Bryson Jones. Uh, I've got actually, this is a two part cause there's two questions I've, Felt well, like we're kind of related. So Bryson Jones wants to know what role did or does compression play in his classic chopping rhythms rhythm playing? And then Corey Allen Porter wants to know, is the tone really in the fingers?
2: Yeah, it's it's really bone tone. Um bone tone. Yes. Yeah. Um if almost any guitar I play, I'll I won't be satisfied until it sort of sounds like this. Um so it's um it's a combination of very light strings the most ridiculous light pick you can imagine um and also not playing a guitar hard i very very light um and um, and even when I solo, if uh, unless it's unless it's something I really want to like shred down and hit hard, like when I did Halo with Steve Vai, um, uh, or some stuff I did with Dweezil Zappa, um, yeah, when I'm playing with guys like that, you know, out comes the Marshall and or the Hi <laughs> Watt or whatever, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, and then we go and we rip and go nuts. Um, but that's um, typically not what I'm called upon to do. So yeah, I have fun playing with guys like that. I have fun playing with like Andrew Watt. but that's not my main thing. So my main thing is this or or jazz and um, and it's very fulfilling for me to um, play music where I'm always thinking. Like, when I play, um, no matter how simple the song is, I'm always thinking, I'm always thinking, um, what rules are governing where I'm at in the song right now? And how do I do something that I've never played before tonight on this song? It's just, if you've ever seen a live sheet show, you'll see I, I can't help but do that. Because that's fun to me. I think that that's what piano players are doing. They're like, you know. Playing around the
1: rules, breaking the rules all so it the takes- time, yeah,
2: and that, and that's why people ask me many times, man, how could you play those songs for so many years? And you know, and I go, well, pal, I've actually have had hits, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> but it, I feel it's my responsibility to play the songs that if people are hearing me for the first time, you know, they want to hear "Freak Out," they want to hear i'm good coming times. out they want to hear good times
1: yeah they, you know of course and that's the thing about playing live you got to find the way to, that keeps it exciting every night niall you are the best man thank you for doing this today no problem man a lot of fun Far more fun for me i'm sure but i love it man I okay it. anytime if you
2: want to do it with something else that's great you know call me again no, let's do it. let's do it for season
1: two baby i'll be back That was Niall Rogers on Shred with Shifty. What a cool dude and what an amazing player. Uh, You heard him. He said he'd come back and do another tune with us. So we'll hold him to that hopefully sooner than later. And don't forget, we got a bunch of other great guests coming up. We got Mike Campbell. We got Richie Sambora. We got Charlie Starr. We got Mike McCready. Tons of guests. It's going to be an awesome first season. And that's it for this week. We'll see you soon. Adios, amigos. One, two, three. Shred with Shifty is created and hosted by me, Chris Shiflett, and produced in partnership with Double Elvis, Volume.com, and Premier Guitar. If you're digging the show, make sure you hit that follow or subscribe button so you get our new episodes when they come out every other week. Volume.com is a free platform with live stream performances, concert broadcasts, and a video archive that includes performances by Brothers Osborne, Stone Temple Pilots, Dirks Bentley, Weezer, and more. Shred with Shifty is produced by Jason Shadrick. Our executive producers are Brady Sadler and Jake Brennan for Double Elvis. Engineering support by Matt Tehaney and Matt Bowden. Our video editors are Dan DeStefano and Addison Savan. Special thanks to Chris Peterson, Greg Necron, and the entire Volume.com crew. Adios, amigo.